They used to be at Bible conference at Bob Jones every year. The preacher boys would sing that hymn. They would just let her rip. It was good. We're going to turn this evening to Zechariah chapter 2. Zechariah chapter 2. And we'll read the entire chapter, starting in verse number 1, Zechariah 2, and verse 1. I lifted up mine eyes again and looked, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. Then said I, Whither goest thou? And he said unto me, To measure Jerusalem, to see what is the breadth thereof. And what is the length thereof? And behold, the angel that talked with me went forth, and another angel went out to meet him, and said unto him, Run, speak to this young man, saying, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as towns without walls for the multitude of men and cattle therein. For I, saith the Lord, will be unto her a wall of fire round about, and will be the glory in the midst of her. Ho, ho, come forth and flee from the land of the north, saith the Lord. For I have spread you abroad as the four winds of the heaven, saith the Lord. Deliver thyself, O Zion, that dwellest with the daughter of Babylon. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, After the glory hath he sent me unto the nations which spoiled you. For he that toucheth you toucheth the apple of his eye. For behold, I will shake mine hand upon them, and they shall be a spoil to their servants. And ye shall know that the Lord of hosts hath sent me. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for lo, I come, and I will dwell in the midst of thee, saith the Lord. And many nations shall be joined to the Lord in that day, and shall be my people. And I will dwell in the midst of thee, and thou shalt know that the Lord of hosts hath sent me unto thee. And the Lord shall inherit Judah his portion in the holy land, and shall choose Jerusalem again. Be silent, O all flesh, before the Lord, for he is raised up out of his holy habitation. Amen. We'll end our Bible reading there at the end of chapter 2, the end of verse 13. And let's seek the Lord in prayer together. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask tonight that you would take up your word. We pray that you would use it in every heart. We've just sung a hymn declaring our testimony that we are on the Lord's side and that you belong to us. We pray that as you speak to us this evening, that you would challenge and encourage our hearts to truly make it so that we cast our lot in with you and truly live our lives as ones who are on your side. And so we pray that you'll work in us tonight, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we did not read the last part of chapter 1. We, we skipped that part. Um, no particular reason other than our focus this evening really is on chapter 2, 
But what we skipped in verses 18 to 21 of chapter 1 is Zechariah's second vision. In that vision, he saw four horns and he saw four carpenters. Now, those horns are not trumpets. They're not musical instrument type horns. But really, they are horns that are symbolic of power. Think more along the lines of rhinoceros and a giant central horn that would come out of a powerful beast that would go and would use its horn as a means of force to plow through or to attack its prey. Well, the four carpenters are sent by the Lord to cut off those horns. Those horns are the symbol of power that have scattered the Lord's people, that have brought destruction on the Lord's people. And the Lord says, enough of that. And he sends these carpenters to cut off those horns and to cast them aside. The four of the horns there, I think, indicates to us something of the north, south, east, and west. Uh, The idea that from every direction the attack of the enemy has come upon God's people. And God is putting a stop to that. He he had allowed that uh, persecution for a time, but that time was coming to an end. And God is going to deliver his people. In chapter 2, we read the third vision of Zechariah. And this is a vision of the great expansion of God's people. The great expansion of God's people. There's a very real way, if you read the first, second, and third vision together, just in one sitting, you'll see that these three visions really go together. Remember this morning, the the title of my message was, What in the World is Going On? And we looked at the fact that God knows what is going on. God cares about what is going on, and ultimately God will change. God will step into time. He will change what is going on. He will make all of the wrongs right. And so in that vision, in that first vision, we have evidence of the Lord stopping his enemies, and we have evidence of the Lord blessing and prospering his church, establishing his kingdom. Well, the second vision in some ways, is a more full explanation of part of the first vision of the Lord stopping the advance of his enemies. And the third vision is a more full explanation of the Lord establishing his church and bringing them into that that place of great prosperity. And so God is going to turn to his people in such a way that they will know great blessings more than they've ever known before. And you remember back to chapter 1 and verse 3 really serves as our theme verse of what Zechariah is preaching, what Zechariah's prophecy is about. Turn unto me, and I will turn to you. And these visions are really the manifestation of the Lord turning to his people. And we have in this third vision the great expansion of God's people. And so that's the subject that I want to preach to you on this evening, the title of my message this evening, The Great Expansion of God's People. 
And I want you to see from this vision, first of all, in verses 1 to 5, the promise of a great expansion of God's people. So we start here with the promise that is given. In uh, the particular details of this vision, Zechariah sees a man with a measuring line, uh, a man with a tape measure. Uh, I won't go into uh, really a lot of explanation as to why I believe this, but I'm of the opinion, other commentators are also of this same opinion, I'm happy for it to be somebody else, but I'm of the opinion that this man with the measuring line is the same man that we saw this morning as the one that is riding the red horse. I'm not going to be dogmatic on that point, but I think it's reasonable for us to understand this in the context of everything that's going on here with with these visions and how they all fit together. I believe it is one and the same man. But he's come to measure Jerusalem. He's come to see how big it is. He's come to measure the, the length and, and the breadth of Jerusalem, but only to come to find out that his tape measure's too small. He can't measure it, because we have this other angel who, who intervenes in, and he says, run and, and speak to this man, saying, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as towns without walls for the multitude of the men and the cattle therein. So we see, first of all, that this promise is of a great expansion of the Lord's people. And and we see in that great expansion of God's people that God will multiply his people. He'll multiply them. Now, as Zechariah is preaching this, you you remember a couple Lord's Days ago, we, we saw in Ezra a very detailed and exact number of 49,000 and and some change there of the number of people that actually returned back to Jerusalem. So we're a little shy of 50,000 people. Uh, Approximately 18 to 20 years has gone by. It's reasonable for us to understand that babies have been born, and let's just call it 50,000 people that are there. Now, not obviously... Obviously, not everybody lived inside the city limits of Jerusalem. Not everybody lived inside what what used to be the walls of Jerusalem. But they were there in that area. And they were all working together. They were supposed to be working together for this common goal of rebuilding Jerusalem, rebuilding the walls, rebuilding the homes, rebuilding the temple ultimately was the most important thing. But this promise... I don't think we're to understand as a promise to establish the expansion of Jerusalem's landmass. Archaeologists will tell us that in the days of Solomon, Jerusalem covered just a little bit over 32 acres, the actual city walls of Jerusalem. And so those that lived inside the city walls at the time of Solomon would have been approximately 5,000 people inside the city, something in the neighborhood of of 32 or so acres. Well, you fast forward from this time, approximately 500 years, and you come to the time of Christ, and the landmass of Jerusalem covered just a little shy of 200 acres. Well, that was not the fulfillment of this. 
because this is saying that it's going to be a town without walls for multitude. You can't fit all the people in there. You can't fit the people in the suburbs of this place. It's just going to be too big to contain it all. And, and so we're not talking about a physical landmass of Jerusalem. The fulfillment of this promise is the multiplying of the true people of God. It was a promise that began to be fulfilled in its, its more full way on the day of Pentecost. On that day, you remember, you can read in Acts chapter 2, at the end of the chapter, there were 3,000 in one day that were converted to Christ. Now, many of these were visitors from outside of Jerusalem. They were there for the special feast. But 3,000 were converted. And it says at the end of Acts 2, and souls were added to the church daily, such as should be saved. You keep reading a little bit in Acts, and you come down to chapter 4, not very many days later, and we have there a record of 5,000 more that believed. So in just a matter of a few days, we have the 3,000, and then daily people were saved, and then a 5,000 were saved. So, so we're at 8,000 plus already in just a matter of days from the day of Pentecost of those that were swept into the kingdom. Look at verse number 11. Part of this prophecy of, of Zechariah 2. And many nations shall be joined to the Lord in that day. Nations brought in. This reminds us, I believe, appropriately of God's promise that he made to Abraham. Uh, that promise is, is recorded for us in a few places in Genesis, but just one specific verse here, Genesis 22 and verse 18, when the Lord tells Abraham, and thy seed, I'm sorry, and in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. It's very important for us to understand that God's promise to Abraham was never a Jewish promise. God's promise to Abraham was never a promise that was limited to a particular bloodline. It wasn't only Abraham's family that was going to be blessed, but it was through his seed all the nations of the earth would be blessed. God always had a purpose of saving Gentiles. From the very beginning, he had that purpose. We even see that evidence so clearly for us even in the Old Testament. You, you come to the New Testament and the New Testament begins with a genealogy of Jesus Christ. And who is in that list, that genealogical list of Jesus Christ, but two Gentile women? One of them a harlot. Rahab the harlot, a Gentile, who was grafted in, was saved, and was given the blessed privilege of even being in the line of Christ. And then Ruth, saved. Married to Boaz, who eventually was in the line of date or bore eventually down the line David and in the bloodline of Christ. And so we have two Gentile women in the Old Testament that were brought into this. You have Jonah going to preach to Nineveh, a, a Gentile nation, and the whole city was converted to Christ. 
And so we see evidence even in the Old Testament of God reaching out, as it were, and bringing in the Gentiles. And God even in that way, beginning in in just a seed form, in just a, a smaller way than what he was going to do later, to multiply his people. God's always had a global purpose. We can say in a very real way, God is a missionary in the truest sense of the word. He goes to seek and to save that which was lost. And part of this promise is to multiply his people. But another part of this promise is to protect his people. And we see that in verse number 5. For I, saith the Lord, will be unto her a wall of fire round about, and will be the glory in the midst of her. This wall of fire, it calls to mind that even an even greater protection than what the Lord had manifested before. You remember one specific episode when the children of Israel were redeemed out of Egypt, and they're there at the Red Sea, and the Egyptian chariots are, are barreling down on them, and God puts himself between the two. And the Bible tells us that in that, God was a pillar of cloud, a, a pillar of fire. And in that pillar of cloud, he cast darkness onto the Egyptians, and as a pillar of fire, he cast light onto the children of Israel. But in that place, God protected his people, successfully so, but manifested himself only as a pillar. He was just a small little barrier between the two. But now he says more than that, he's going to be an entire wall of fire round about. Ancient cities were protected by their walls. I was reading of one archaeological discovery of Uh, a city that was uncovered uh, near Jerusalem that had walls that were 58 feet tall and 238 feet thick. That seems ridiculous that you would need something so big. But that's what was there. But it, it is in line with what we read in other places of Scripture. You remember Jericho. The walls of Jericho were such that chariots could ride on the top of the walls. The, the battle of Jericho and the children of Israel defeating Jericho was monumental. This was a city that for all practical purposes, anybody alive you ask at that time, it was a, it was a city that was impregnable. It, it was a city that couldn't be defeated. Its walls were just too big. You couldn't get through them. You couldn't get over them. You couldn't defeat this city. But yet the Lord did. The Lord brought those walls crumbling down. But yet the Lord here has promised to manifest himself as that ultimate means of protection, that wall of fire that no one can penetrate, that no one can get through. You know, so often we don't have the eye of faith to see the reality, to see the truth of what Zechariah has told us. I want you to turn over to Second Kings 2 Kings chapter 6. We'll be back to Zechariah in just a moment, but look with me at 2 Kings chapter 6. Some of you, just by the reference, are already going to know where I'm going with this. But this is that passage with Elijah's servant. I'm sorry, Elisha's servant. 
Uh, look at Second Kings 6. We'll start reading in verse number 15. Second Kings 6, verse 15. And when the servant of the man of God was risen early and gone forth, behold, an host compassed the city both with horses and chariots. And his servant said unto him, that is, the servant said to Elisha, Alas, my master, how shall we do? The, the, the 2022 Winston-Salem version of that is, Master, we're toast. How shall we do? And Elisha answered, Fear not, for they that be with us are more than they that be with them. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray thee open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. They that be with us are more than they that be with them. The servant couldn't see it. Elisha saw it. Elisha saw it. But the servant didn't until the Lord opened his eyes that I have faith and he could see that the Lord was there as that great means of protection and nothing was going to enter in and nothing was going to defeat. The Lord has promised a great expansion of his people. I believe that we are to understand this vision to be a vision of the reality and not a vision of the shadow. I'm going to repeat that statement because this is important. I believe that we are to understand that this vision to be a vision of the reality and not a vision of the shadow. If it's a vision of the shadow, then it's a prophecy of what would literally happen to the city of Jerusalem. But yet Jerusalem never became a city without walls. Jerusalem never had a wall of fire round about it in that way. It's, Jerusalem was the shadow. Now God did rebuild Jerusalem. God re, did rebuild the temple. But that temple was just a picture. That, even the temple, even all the sacrifices that were there, those were object lessons of the reality. Those weren't the reality. Israel, if you will, the nation of Israel in the Old Testament is not the reality. They're the shadow. This vision is a vision of the reality. The reality of the people of God, the church of Jesus Christ, the invisible church, those that are the elect of every kindred, tribe, tongue, and nation are going to be an innumerable host a city without walls, no man can number them. That's what Zechariah is prophesying, prophesying about, the great expansion of God's people. Now we have to be careful when we look at passages like this, and we have to be careful with the application of these passages. And one of the ways we need to be careful is we do need to understand that this vision is not a promise to build grace free Presbyterian Church. It's not a promise to build the free Presbyterian Church of North America. 
or, or necessarily any other local congregation body of believers. It's a promise to build the kingdom of God in this world. It's a, it's a promise to advance the gospel and, and the multiplication of those that God has chosen to save. It is a promise to fill up the role of God's elect. That's what the promise is. Now, having said that, we are part of that. And so from that perspective, this is a promise to build Grace Free Presbyterian Church. And it is a promise to build the Free Presbyterian Church of North America. And it is a promise to build every faithful ministry of the gospel that we pray for where there's a stand taken for truth and righteousness. It is a promise to build that. Because we are small little collections of this bigger thing. And this thing is way bigger than us. But we are part of the thing. We do belong to the kingdom of God. And so for that, we can take this vision and we can apply it to ourselves. And so, for example, why shouldn't we pray? that by Christmas the Lord fill up the fireplace room as a, as a necessary over, overflow room because not everybody can fit in here. Why should we not pray that? Why should we not pray that we have to abandon this facility and move to something bigger because we can't fit in here? Like in two services we can't fit in here. And so we just have to go someplace else. Why can we not pray for that? I would submit to you, of course we can pray for that. Because God has promised to fill up the role of his elect. He's promised to build his kingdom. He's promised to establish his church. He's promised to be a means of protection. He's promised, look at the end of verse 5, that he would be the glory in the midst of her. Is this not John 1.14? And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And what did we behold? We beheld his glory, even as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The incarnation was the manifestation of that. His glory in the midst. Is that not what we want? Is that not what we pray for? This is the reason we have a pre-service prayer meeting. I know I speak bluntly and forthrightly sometimes, but our pre-service prayer meetings, we're not there to pray for Grandma's big toe. Bless her heart, and we love her toe, and we want her toe to be better. But we're there to pray for the advancement of the kingdom of God. That's what we're, that's what we're praying for. Now, Grandma's toe and Grandma's welfare is involved in that. And, and we love Grandma, and we want her to be better. But our heart, our heart is for the advancement and the establishment of the kingdom of God. And as we're just a little, tiny, tiny, tiny speck of dust in the whole thing, at least we're in the thing. And we can pray for the Lord to use us in the thing and, and to bless what we have. This is not a vision of the shadow, but it's a vision of the reality of the expansion and the multiplication of the kingdom of God. And so we see from this vision a promise of 
of great ex- of the great expansion of God's people. So we see the promise. But I want us to look secondly uh, this evening at the application of a great expansion of God's people. An application of this. What does this vision mean for us? How, how do we apply this vision to ourselves? Well, verses 6 to 13 really are the application of this vision. The Verses 6 to 13 are, are the so what of that promise that was given in verses 1 to 5. So what? What, what does this mean? What, what difference does this make? Well, in the application of this vision, the Lord addresses two different groups of people. He addresses one group from verses 6 to 9, and he addresses a different group of people from verses 10 to 13. The first group that he addresses in verses 6 to 9 are those in the church but are yet still flirting with sin. That's the first group. And then the second group he addresses are those in the church who really are seeking to be faithful. They're really seeking to follow the Lord the right way. And so you have these two groups addressed. Those that are in the church, but yet still flirting with sin, and those who are sincerely seeking to be faithful. And so let's look at that first group first and the application to those still flirting with sin. Look at verse 6. He cries out, Ho, ho, come forth and flee from the land of the north, saith the Lord. Flee from that place. Well, if you look at the back of your Bible at a map, if you turn to the back of your Bible, you might get distracted the whole rest of the time and get interested in your maps. But if you look at a map in the back of your Bible, you'll find that Babylon is actually east of Jerusalem and is geographically not at all located north of Jerusalem. But in Scripture, very, very often, Babylon is referred to as the land of the north. And part of the reason for that is there's this very inconvenient, massive desert that lies geographically between Babylon and where Jerusalem is. So anyone who traveled between the two places, if you traveled from Babylon to Jerusalem, you would have to go north out of Babylon and travel west in a counterclockwise arc and come down into Jerusalem, and you would enter into Jerusalem from the north. And so it was all the, I mean, not all the time, but it was very often referred to in the scripture as the land of the north, because all the people who came from Babylon came from the north. Now, if you came from Egypt, you didn't come from the north. You came from Egypt, you came from the south. But Babylon, that land of the north, and And so this is what he's talking about. Come out of her, flee from the land of the north. Now, when Cyrus took power with the Persians, and he changed the whole policy, Nebuchadnezzar's policy was capture everybody, bring them, treat them okay, and they'll be loyal. And Belteshazzar, he followed suit. Darius followed suit, and then Cyrus. Well, Cyrus, he had a different policy. He said, no, 
send them back to their homeland, give them a little bit of money, help them fix up their old houses, be nice to them, and we'll just collect all the taxes. And it was an entirely different policy, but it was all in the mind of God, and it just so happened in God's sovereignty that these two things happened 70 years apart from one another, just like God predicted, just like God promised it was going to happen. And so Cyrus says, you're free to go home. And so 50,000 went to Jerusalem. Some went to the coast of the Mediterranean. Some went to some other place. Some They dispersed all over. There was just this remnant that went to Jerusalem. But many of them said, you know, hey, we kind of like it here. And they got married here. I got a mortgage now. Got a job. Got my roots. You know, planted here. And why leave? This is a comfortable enough place. There's nothing wrong. I like it. But the Lord says, no, flee from that. Flee from that place. Because where they were, where they were living to use John Bunyan's words, they were living in the city of destruction. They were living in a place that God was going to pour out his wrath and judgment upon. And, and that's why I use this language. These are those that, yeah, they were Israelites, but they were still in sin. They were still flirting with sin. They had not come out from among them and been separate. You remember the other Friday night when Pastor Bannister spoke at our Brother Jim's ordination service. He spoke on the man of God. And one of his points was that the man of God is a man who flees. He flees sin. He flees temptation. And he flees to Christ. This is what Zechariah calls them to do, is to, to flee. To flee sin. To flee to the Lord. Maybe you're here tonight and you're one who, you know, you, you come to church, but you're still flirting with sin. And the Lord calls you to separate from that, to separate from everything that leads you to sin. Turn over with me, if you will, to 2 Corinthians 6. 2 Corinthians 6. There probably is not a more clear, direct passage of Scripture that deals with this than 2 Corinthians 6. Verse 14 is a verse that we preach to our young people to make sure they find a Christian spouse. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord. Paul saying the same thing in Corinthians that Zechariah is preaching to us here, that Zechariah saw in this vision. Come out from among them and be ye separate. Stop flirting with sin. Stop doing that. Come to the Lord. And 
back in Zechariah's vision, the Lord gives good reasons as to why you ought to flee from that city of destruction. If you look at verses 7 to 9, you'll, you'll see the good reason that it is God is going to destroy that place. God is going to execute judgment on that place. You know, those, that little piddly bunch in Jerusalem, they weren't much. You know, Jerusalem at that time, that wasn't the land of opportunity. In Babylon, land of opportunity. They had a good economy. Israel, at this point in their time, not so much. And they might have seen a very insignificant bunch then. But the problem was judgment was coming on the wicked. You know, we, we picked these hymns. I don't know who picked um, I'm on the Lord's side. But here, this is what we're talking about. Whose side are you on? Be on the Lord's side. Take your place with the people of God. Cast your lot there. But we finish this evening looking at verses 10 to 13. And that's an application to those seeking to be faithful. Those that are the daughter of Zion, what are they supposed to do? Well, it says there in verse 10, sing and rejoice. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion. Now, you know, it could be easy for us to look around and, and say, well, you know, we don't have much to sing and rejoice about. You don't know all the stuff that's going on in my life right now. You don't know all the discouragements that I face. Not a lot to sing about. Not a lot to rejoice about. Maybe you, you come this evening and you have a lot of frustrations of stuff that's been going on. And you say, I don't have a lot to sing about. I don't have a whole lot to rejoice about. You don't know how rotten life is right now. Maybe you just you can't see any light at the end of your tunnel. And I mean, we all know the joke, right? The light at the end of the tunnel is the oncoming train. Right? It's just going to plow you over. Right? And maybe that's kind of the conclusion you've come to. But that's not what the Lord says. The Lord says, sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion. And we have good reason for that. Why? Look at the end of verse 10. For lo, I come. If I can say this as reverently as possible, help is on the way. Help is on the way. Lo, I come. I will dwell in the midst of thee, saith the Lord. And many nations shall be joined to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. And we see that start to unfold in the New Testament. We see the expansion of that. We see the, the explosion and the growth of the church. We see it going all over, all over the known world. And the Bible doesn't record for us all the apostles where they went, but we've got uh, church history records of apostles going to, toward India and up into the Europe area and down into Africa and you know, after the day of Pentecost, and, and while Paul is writing, and Peter's doing this, and James is writing, you know, there's Nathaniel and Bartholomew and all the rest of those guys, and they're, they're going different places, and they're, they didn't get recorded in the Bible, all the, the details of what they did, but they began to preach every place. Zechariah's message is really a very clear message of hope and a very clear message of comfort for the people of God. As an outsider looking in, that little bunch in Jerusalem wasn't very impressive. 
They weren't much to look at. But they were God's people. An outsider looking in could find several reasons to throw their mockery at their way because of their smallness and you know pitiful. I mean, who? we drive around, we see houses that get started, and then all of a sudden it stops. You're like, who, who did that? Who, who didn't count the cost? And we're reminded of that in the New Testament, right? You count the cost before you build. And, and here they, they laid a foundation, and they just kind of abandoned ship. They just stopped. Like, what are you people doing? You come all gung-ho, zealous to, to build something, and you, you start, and then what are you guys doing? And plenty of reasons to, to mock and scorn. They weren't much to look at. But yet now the Lord has come to them. And the Lord says, I'm going to turn to you. Um, I'm going to dwell with you. And on the horizon is blessing that you can't even measure. Is blessing that you can't even quantify. And so from that, what reason do we have to doubt the promise of God? We don't have any reason to doubt his promise. Maybe you say, well, the Lord can't bless me because I've got too much sin. Well, come back Sunday. We're going to deal with that. The Lord takes all the sin away. So that excuse is gone. He removes the filthy garments. And he closes, clothes Joshua, the high priest, the representative of the people, with those spotless, spotless garments. Tonight we can rejoice in God's promise to expand his people. And I pray that we all be led to pray that the Lord would do such a thing here. You know, he's been doing it for 2,000 years. He's been building his church for 2,000 years. And here we are, we're a little part of it. And there's no reason why we can't be a bigger part of it. There's no reason why we can't know the Lord's blessing in this place in a greater way than we have known. I don't, I don't mean to insinuate that we don't know the Lord's blessing or we haven't known it. I'm just here to insinuate that we can anticipate knowing more of it. We have every reason to pray for it, every reason to long for it. And may the Lord work in our hearts in such a way to make it so. Amen. Let's close in prayer. Our Father, we do thank you that you are one who keeps your promises to your people. And we pray that you would do a good work in each of our hearts. We pray for those here that are in that first group address that would be those who still are flirting with sin. Maybe not even flirting so much as already have given it a big hug. And we pray that you would break the power of sin over them, draw them to yourself. We pray for those who are seeking to be faithful, that you would strengthen us, pray that you would help us to fight against temptation. And for that, we pray for this week that's before us with the different responsibilities and concerns that we have. We pray for grace and strength to meet each one. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.